Well, I, I'm probably one of the few that have, like, I love, I fully and completely embrace Amazon. So I had this debate actually on my Facebook page, my personal Facebook page with friends. And I said, hey, how many of you think when you shop on Amazon that you're supporting a small business? People were like, no, you're just buying from the big guy. No, it's this big seller. I'm like, you're absolutely wrong. You're absolutely wrong. One time a malicious seller actually bought out all of our inventory. So we had nothing to sell. And then at the end of the season, once it was over, they returned everything. So not only did we not make any money, but we lost out on all the revenue for the holiday season as well. I'm just guessing that it was a competitor. Who else would buy, you know, like a hundred dozen napkins, right? And then just return them. You've got large competition selling at lower prices um, with levels of convenience you can't deliver versus a community-minded small business who is building community in both economic and non-economic ways. Um, and that's, that's something that Amazon is working really hard to erase. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And we've arrived at episode three of our series, Amazon, The Prime Effect, where we're examining how Amazon is changing everything about how we live, work, and shop. In 2018, more than $275 billion of goods were sold on Amazon. For products, Amazon sells itself and third-party sellers who use the platform. Collectively, it's all called Amazon Marketplace. There are about 2 million independent small and medium-sized businesses that sell through Amazon. In 2020, Amazon made at least $80 billion on those service fees alone. So today, we're looking at Amazon Marketplace, or more specifically, how Amazon has transformed buying and selling. And if you're a small business owner, how Amazon hasn't just changed the rules of the game, but the entire game itself. So, what's it like being a small business owner in an Amazon world? We asked three entrepreneurs. Sure, my name is Sherry Yukal, and I own a company called Big Dot of Happiness. Sherry's company designs and sells party supplies from Menominee, Wisconsin. I'm uh, Danny Kane. I am the owner of the Raven Bookstore in Lawrence, Kansas. Danny's owned the bookstore since 2017. Yes, uh, my name is Steve, and I run an e-commerce store selling handkerchiefs with my wife over at BumblebeeLinens.com. Steve Choi and his wife live in Silicon Valley and founded their specialty linens business back in 2007. Now, the first thing we wanted to know from all three of them is... How'd they get involved in retail? Long story short is my husband came home from work one day and I was asking him if I could buy a pair of shoes and he questioned why I needed another pair of black shoes. I got kind of annoyed and I said, that's it. I'm going to start doing something on the side so they can create a little spending money. This was back in 1999. She immediately learned HTML so she could dive into e-commerce. Her business has been entirely online since day one and now she employs more than 100 people. Steve Choi's retail business is entirely online, too. He now sells more than a million dollars annually in specialty linens and handkerchiefs. And why? It's because when my wife and I got married, she knew she was going to cry at the wedding. We spent all this money on photography, and she didn't want to be shown on camera using nasty tissues to dry her tears. So we looked all over the place for handkerchiefs. We couldn't find any anywhere. Finally, we found this factory in China, ended up importing a bunch because the minimum order requirements were higher. We maybe used six or seven of them, and then we sold the rest on eBay, and then ended up selling like hotcakes. 
Danny Kane's story is different. He became the owner of an already well-established, deeply loved local brick-and-mortar bookstore. Uh, well, the first time I walked in, it was April 2014. There were two women holding a cat, trying to cut its nails. And the cat was just screaming and thrashing around. Um, and they were like, hi, welcome to the Raven. And like, I just knew it was going to be a funny place. It's cozy. It's really small. Uh, the floors are creaky, but it's really welcoming. The way I think any room stuffed with 10,000 books is going to feel welcoming. So three founders with three very different views of Amazon Marketplace. Sherry Yukel in Wisconsin says, frankly, she loves what Amazon has done for her business. I view Amazon as the giant new downtown door. We live in a town of 16,000 people. It is a town, it's not a big metro, and we employ over 100 employees. And without Amazon, our brand would have never became more of a household name or even been able to sell in markets and product production that we do today. Sherry recently sold her business to an outside investor, so she won't disclose what percentage of her sales are through Amazon. But she does say the company gives sellers the entire toolkit needed to succeed in e-commerce. Amazon has really said, okay, if you are a seller and you want to learn our technology, we're gonna give you a platform that makes it super easy for you to sell. And the fact that we sell our own stuff and we're the only one that represents our stuff means that we're the one who controls the buy box, we're the one who controls our pricing, and we're the one who can talk directly to the end consumer. On that point, Steve Choi in California disagrees. We're just very cautious about selling on Amazon because these days Amazon doesn't even let you know who the customer is. That's why Steve says even though he had a lot of success his first month listing on the e-commerce giant, he decided to keep the majority of his inventory on his own website. So now, only 20% of his business comes through Amazon. It's very hard to get cheated when you own your own store, whereas when you're on Amazon, it's almost always in the buyer's favor. Like, we've had times when people returned our merchandise on Amazon, but they didn't even return our merchandise. They returned, like, a T-shirt instead of our napkins. And... Amazon always gives them a refund and you're pretty much stuck with it. The difference is that you're in full control when you own your own platform. Of course, the original platform for retail is the local brick and mortar store. Danny Kane in Kansas says that even though the Raven bookstore has survived big box booksellers and the rise of e-commerce, the threat of losing customers to Amazon is ever present. One day, I just overheard a discussion between a customer and our inventory manager where the customer just said, you know, I'm not going to buy this here because it's available for $15 on Amazon. It was a $26.99 book. $15 is below our cost for that book, though our prices are higher, um, not because we're overcharging, but because we're accurately charging. We're charging the price on the book. We are charging the price of the book. Amazon is the one that's modifying prices. And that's a conversation that happens in every bookstore all the time. By the way, the future looks dire for traditional brick-and-mortar overall. The rise of e-commerce and high real estate prices were already putting the squeeze on businesses. But the COVID pandemic may have supercharged their demise. 100,000 stores could close over the next five years, according to the global financial firm UBS. Meanwhile, Amazon reported that its net product and service sales in North America jumped 38% last year, 
to $236 billion. Danny Kane says for as long as the Raven bookstore stays open, every dollar spent there stays in Lawrence, Kansas. The store also hosts literary festivals, supports local authors, employs people who are teachers and farmers in nearby neighborhoods, things that Danny says generate creativity and inspiration by bringing the community together. From a pure accounting standpoint, that's not going to show up on a balance sheet, but it's huge for your reputation and customer loyalty and the non-balance sheet ways you build community, which we're extremely interested in and Amazon does not appear interested in. The rules for success in retail small business are changing. Is Amazon just accelerating those changes or rewriting the entire rule book? Sherry Yukel believes that's the wrong way to look at things. Change is a fact of doing business, she says. Yep, it happens in any field, in any arena whatsoever. But you've got to keep your you know, foot to the pedal and figure it out and stop whining about you know, getting knocked off, frankly and just do what you do best and and figure out a way to make money doing it. The competition on Amazon Marketplace is especially fierce. Say someone is looking for special 4th of July cupcake decorations. Pop those search terms into Amazon and hundreds of results show up. If customers manage to find Sherry's items, she knows that competing vendors show up on her own product page. So Sherry says she does wish that Amazon Marketplace would make it easier for sellers to promote their own products. I don't know how to get to that so that you don't think you're just buying a widget from a no-name brand. You're actually buying from a company that gets you, understands you, and listens to you. Well, Danny Kane believes that businesses that do all those things already exist. When you withhold a purchase from Amazon and make that purchase of the local business, Amazon won't feel it. They're huge, but the local business will feel it. You like uh, the small business will absolutely feel the addition of a regular customer, even if Amazon won't feel the cancellation of a prime subscription. But as with all things Amazon, Amazon Marketplace is huge. And something so huge resists simplification. Sherry Yukel says, bottom line, consumers bear a lot of responsibility to shop wisely. Because with two million small and medium-sized third-party sellers on the site, in a sense, Main Street is on Amazon too. I just think people need to realize and that People live and breathe in rural and urban settings, and you're buying from either someone on a corner store in a big metro that's just trying to make ends meet. Um, Look at who you're shopping from, even if you're shopping on Amazon. Look at who you're buying from. Figure out if that's a legit company that you want to support, because our store doesn't exist. It's in the sky. Let's all think about that. We don't have a physical store, but we have a digital store, and we're really trying to connect. Sherry Yukel is the founder of Big Dot of Happiness, a party supply company based in Menominee, Wisconsin. You also heard from Steve Choi, co-founder of Bumblebee Linens in Silicon Valley, and Danny Kane, owner of the Raven Bookstore in Lawrence, Kansas. 
Well, this is episode three of our series, Amazon, The Prime Effect. Today, we're taking a look at Amazon Marketplace, that behemoth in the world of e-commerce. And when we come back, we'll dive deep into how the marketplace works and how the company has captured almost 50% of e-commerce in the United States. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today it's episode three of our series on Amazon that we're calling The Prime Effect, about how Amazon, the company, is changing how we live, how we work, and how we shop. And today we're taking a specific look at that third part, vis-a-vis Amazon Marketplace, the company's e-commerce platform that's home to both Amazon products and products from millions of independent sellers. And it is a behemoth in the world of e-commerce, very rapidly transforming that world. So we want to understand how Amazon Marketplace works, how it's grown, what it means to Amazon the company, and what it means to how business is done, uh, particularly here in the United States. And in the process, by the way, uh, of putting together this hour, we put out a survey to small business owners about how Amazon shapes their business. And here's what several of those small business owners actually told us. For example, um, uh, Rolf uh, Poetting says that uh, Rolf always tries to shop from the original manufacturer, if that's an option. That buying from Amazon, though, gives lesser-known brands a chance, and they are sort of protected under the Amazon umbrella regarding returns and warranties. So in a sense, Rolf says Amazon levels the playing field. Uh, and Myrtle Wilhite says, I never ever buy anything from Amazon personally because I will not support their system. Uh, while it's possible that the business has uh, has um, bought something from Amazon, it is only because that product or service was unavailable 
elsewhere. Elsewhere. Well, joining us now is Stacy Mitchell. She's with us from Portland, Maine. She's co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, a national research and advocacy organization. And she's also author of several reports about Amazon, including Amazon's Monopoly Toll Booth uh, and a cover story in The Nation called Amazon Doesn't Just Want to Dominate the Market, It Wants to Become the Market. Stacy, welcome back to the program. It's great to be here. So first of all, I wonder if you could actually just describe to us, you've got kind of an interesting metaphor for how large is Amazon Marketplace? How do we visualize how big this this part of the company is? It's vast. I mean, Amazon Marketplace, the the fees that Amazon takes from third-party sellers, you know, last year, nearly $90 billion. That's a quarter of the company's revenue and twice as much revenue as it's getting from AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services, its huge cloud computing division. So this is massive. And Marketplace really illustrates what it is that Amazon is all about. Amazon wants to be the infrastructure for the exchange of goods and service. They want to be the backbone of how commerce works, uh, the platform in which transactions happen. And so Marketplace really is an illustration of their their core power. Mm. You have a, um, a good metaphor about what that would look like in the brick and mortar world if there were a, an, a, an equivalently large company. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, you know, I think sometimes because this whole world of digital commerce is new, it can be, you know, hard to kind of really recognize what's going on. And so so the analogy I think here that that is apt is to think about, you know, if if Walmart came into your city or town and they not only built a bunch of big Walmart stores uh, across the city, but they also bought up all of the commercial real estate. And they got to control uh, which businesses got good locations, prominent corners, uh, which businesses were uh, in a small space, often an alleyway that nobody uh, walked by, how much those businesses had to pay to lease that space. And then also, you know, Walmart was able to see every single customer that walked into a business's door, what they bought, what they looked at and didn't buy. And use all of that data and information to its own advantage. I mean, that is the what would the physical world equivalent of what Amazon has effectively done online. They have really monopolized the whole market. They're not only the retailer, but they own the real estate that everybody else needs to use. And the implication is that if we saw that in the brick and mortar world, it wouldn't be tolerated. No, we would never stand for that because on its face, it's fundamentally anti-competitive. Um, you know, it, in that scenario, Walmart is is controlling who's winner, who, who wins and who loses, not the market. And that is effectively what Amazon is doing online. So tell us more than you, you mentioned the, the $90 billion in fees from uh, third party sellers who who sell their wares uh, on Amazon. What are those fees? How does that work? There are uh, three main components to those fees. Um, And just to give some perspective on how those fees have changed over time, you know, in 2014, Amazon was taking an average of about 19% of every dollar that a seller earned. Um, By last year, it was over 30%. 
And that's an average. A lot of sellers in the United States are giving 40, 50% of of their revenue right off the top uh, to Amazon. Those fees consist of of three main components. One is the basic commission, which is simply the the percentage you have to give Amazon for listing and selling a product. And that's 15% for most products. That hasn't changed in the entire time that Amazon has been in business. One would expect that it would go down as Amazon did more transactions because presumably everything is becoming more efficient, but it hasn't changed. So that's remained quite high. And then on top of that, Amazon has added fees for warehousing and shipping products and also fees for advertising. Increasingly, in order to have your product show up on that first page of search results, you have to buy their advertising. So you have to pay additional fees for that. And the shipping and warehousing um, is obviously a service, but the, the problem there is that Amazon effectively requires sellers to use its uh, shipping service, as opposed to say UPS or the postal service, and so effectively uh, is compelling them to buy that if they want to succeed on the site. So those are the three main forms of fees. There are a number of other smaller fees, but but those are the big ones. Well, and so when you say effectively compelling sellers to buy that the shipping service, is that to be Prime eligible or just to to just sell sell their products through Amazon? Yes, in order to get the prime label, you need to ship through Amazon, you need to warehouse use Amazon's warehousing and shipping service. There was for a little while an exception to that. There are still a few sellers who are able to do their own shipping, but for the most part, that avenue has been cut off. Um, and if you're not prime eligible, like not only do you lose that badge, which you know many shoppers are looking for, but you also get you're less likely to to what is known among sellers, <clears throat> excuse me, as as win the buy box. You're less likely to be chosen as the default seller, and almost all sales go to the default seller. So if you if you lose that, Amazon's algorithm says, look, if you're not using our, our warehousing and shipping, you really have a much lower chance of of getting that, and, and that's really critical to succeeding. Mm-hmm. So effectively, you really have to use their warehousing services to be to to make any sales on the site. Okay, so so for the sake of clarity, though, um, you quoted a number ninety billion dollars in um, in service fees that Amazon is collecting from third-party sellers on marketplace that's your estimate because we were looking at the the Amazon's 10k from 2020 mm-hmm. and they they report 80 billion dollars but it wasn't clear to us about how much that adver- advertising piece was so is that how you're factoring it up to 90 billion that's right. The $80 billion covers the warehousing fees and the commissions. Amazon does not include the advertising that third-party sellers. And so we've worked from another data source to estimate that. And that's where you get to $90 billion. And that is also how you get your estimate of the 30% number that you have of Amazon um, collecting from sellers on each transaction. Yes. And last year, it was about 31%. Okay. Um, well, you know what's interesting is that clearly marketplace is a hugely important part of Amazon's overall business. It's also one of the oldest parts, right? It's a couple of decades old. Um, but it's interesting that we it's, it's actually hard to find concrete data externally about Amazon Marketplace, uh, unlike Amazon Web Services, which is reported out distinctly in um, Amazon's financials. And I, I ran into some of this challenge when um, I spoke with Amazon's vice president for customer trust and partner support. Uh, his name is Dharmesh Mehta. And um, I asked him about 
what benefit marketplace brings overall to Amazon, the corporation? And, and here's the question I asked him. Are you able to say how what percentage of Amazon's overall revenue is coming from the marketplace? Uh, I don't know uh, that specific stat. What I can tell you is in the last year, we estimate that for these small businesses, they've been able to generate about $25 billion in kind of economic profit. Um, they've created you know, more than 2 million jobs. Um, and so there's a tremendous amount of value creation that's kind of occurred through this partnership between Amazon and small businesses. It is just difficult externally to find out, though, what the benefit is to Amazon in terms of a balance sheet bottom line. And, and I hear you're unable to to give us an answer on that. That's correct. Okay. Stacey Mitchell, respond to that. I mean, do, do we have any idea, not just those fees, but overall, you know, including what Amazon itself sells on Marketplace, how much money is this company making from this? Oh, I mean, they're enormous. I mean, the, the fees is what Amazon is taking in. But when you look at the overall volume of sales that's moving through Amazon's platform, both its own retail sales and those of sellers, um, it's huge. I, I would actually have to pull up the number for you, but it's bigger than we understand just looking at Amazon's financials because uh, that volume of sales isn't captured. It's just the fees that, that they're taking. You know, I think it's, uh, you know, it's hard to believe that Amazon doesn't, you know, executives working at Amazon don't all know that figure. Of course they do. Um, I think that there's, and there's a lot of sort of smoke and mirrors in this notion of like sellers are generating all of this profit and so on. I mean, we, we did a survey of about a thousand independent businesses across the US in, in 2019, and only 11% of those who are selling on Amazon site describe their experience as successful. I mean, most sellers are not succeeding. And what we see in the data is that sellers have a, a relatively short lifespan of being on the site. It's sort of like, you know, it's like going to a casino. You might win a hand, you might even have a good streak, but at the end of the day, you know, only the house wins. And, and that's the basic setup here. And over time, you know, those 2 million sellers, it's a huge variety. It's it's hard to characterize them, you know, in, 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 a, in a generalized sort of way. But we do know that over time, the share of those sellers selling into the U.S. market who are based overseas and particularly in China has grown. I mean, China-based sellers are now about half of, of U.S. sales. And so, you know, as a measure of how well U.S.-based small businesses are doing, I, you know, I think that's an indication that this is really, uh, you know, very, very few of them are, are succeeding. Well, but when you mean by succeeding, though, what what do you mean? Because we've talked with with sellers, you, you heard them in the, in the previous segment, uh, who say that without Amazon, they could not have imagined their businesses growing the way they did. And in fact, ironically, it was ever more true in 2020 because of the COVID pandemic, that it was access to markets that had been completely closed off because of lockdowns that Amazon, you know, gave them that helped keep them going. Oh, but the web, you know, the web is absolutely fantastic uh, for independent businesses. I mean, not, you know, you can reach your customers, even if you're brick and mortar in person, you can also reach them when they feel like shopping online. Um, and it enables a seller and say a smaller community to, to reach a wider market. I mean, there are all sorts of benefits to e-commerce for independent businesses, but in order to really realize those benefits, we can't have a single gatekeeper that controls uh, access and can charge whatever sort of toll that it wants and can use that position as a gatekeeper, as we have seen Amazon do repeatedly, to essentially 
you know, uh, appropriate the data and information about best-selling products of sellers and then, and then make its own versions and actually compete with them. I mean, this, this setup, you know, we, we need to sort of sort out the two things here, uh, access to the web and e-commerce and all the benefits of that. That's different from having a single company having total unregulated control over that and having an incentive to preference its own interests at the expense of independent businesses. Well, uh, what Amazon does with the data that it collects from Marketplace, we'll talk about that in detail uh, in a in a second. But I just also want to um, play a little bit more of my conversation with Dharmesh Mehta, who's, the again, the vice president for customer trust and partner support at Amazon. And we, I, I asked him quite a simple question uh, about... Um, sort of what the core of uh, Marketplace's business is. Specifically, who do you see as the Marketplace's customers? Well, so it's interesting. You know, when we um, talk about customers, Amazon talks a lot about um, our customer obsession. And when we're building new features or new programs, we obsess over whoever the customer is that we're building those inventions for. And so in the case of sellers, there's a lot we do to build, you know, tools and capabilities and new features and new programs and support capabilities all for these selling partners. We obsess over trying to create amazing solutions for them. Mm. So is so is what you're saying is you see as your your primary customers, the sellers. I, I think um, it, it, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Okay. You know, I think sometimes we uh, we're we're building things that are for you know the sellers as our customers, um, but both our selling partners and us are also serving a customer that is the buying customer. And then I also asked him about specifically what kind of tools Amazon provides to sellers to get the kind of success that can be possible on the platform. We do a great deal to provide kind of guidance and training. The, the second thing we do is we really try to provide small businesses with a great deal of kind of power and benefits that normally require much larger scale. You know, whether that's things like our fulfillment by Amazon service, um, we allow sellers to tap into, you know, obviously this uh, large amount of customer traffic. Um, we are, we're able to provide sellers with tremendous amounts of kind of uh, analytics and data around what customers are searching for and what they're looking for and what they like. Um, and we really put, you know, the seller front and center. So, again, that's Dharmesh Mehta, Amazon's vice president for customer trust and partner support. Uh, and Stacy Mitchell responded to that because, I, you know, I heard you say a minute ago that Amazon is this giant unregulated uh, force in the e-commerce market that basically controls, you know, the locks to, to all the doors here. But, but Meta there is telling us that they provide some services at scale that otherwise businesses, small businesses wouldn't have access to. And that's quite powerfully positive in his view. Your, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, Amazon, you know, has a lot to gain from uh, third-party sellers selling on its site and the, the revenue that it takes in from them. I mean, I think the reality when it when you, it comes to uh, you know all of the data that Amazon is gathering is it's actually quite stingy with sellers. I mean, it lets them into some of that, but a lot of that Amazon is keeping for itself. There are lots of different metrics about activity on the site that are, that are not available to sellers. But I think really a, a very telling aspect of how uh, Amazon uh, uh, thinks about these business businesses is a is a um, 
is an internal memo that was unearthed during the House Antitrust Subcommittee's big tech investigation. They published a report from that investigation last October. So Stacey, hang on here for a second because we have 10 seconds before we have to get to the break. When we come back from that break, you can tell us more about that memo. So we'll be right back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today it's episode three of our ongoing series, Amazon, The Prime Effect, where we're taking a look at Amazon and how it's changing the way we live, work, and shop. And today we're really focusing on that last part there and looking at Amazon Marketplace and how the company is transforming e-commerce. And I'm joined today by Stacey Mitchell. She's co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and National Research and Advocacy Organization. She's written several reports on Amazon, including Amazon's Monopoly Toll Booth and a cover story in The Nation that was had titled, Amazon doesn't just want to dominate the market, it wants to become the market. And before the break, Stacey, you were telling us uh, about an uh, an Amazon internal memo that was unearthed during a recent congressional committee, a uh, congressional hearing, I should say. That's right. You know, externally, Amazon talks about third-party sellers as, quote, partners. But within the company, uh, as this memo revealed, they refer to them as, quote, internal competitors. <laughs> so, you know, this is, you know, Amazon sees sellers as its competitors. It sees them as an opportunity to, to glean a lot of revenue because they have no place else to go and as businesses that they can appropriate their data and, and compete against them. Uh, and that's really fundamentally, you know, problematic. I think just to go back to to this sort of notion of like, well, isn't Amazon providing all of these great tools and services? You know, it's, again, it's the web is great online shopping that there are uh, platforms and tools available to independent businesses that they couldn't create on their own. That's all to the good. The problem is that Amazon faces no real competition. So if you're a seller and you don't like the way Amazon is treating you, where else are you going to go? They have two thirds of all uh, eyeballs starting, you know, when people go to shop online, two thirds start at Amazon. Uh, you know, so you don't have competition disciplining Amazon's behavior. You also have no regulation. And without 
either of those things, what we have is a situation where Amazon itself is effectively regulating online commerce. They're deciding. Uh, and it's fundamentally not democratic. It's fundamentally at odds with our values of sort of liberty and open markets. Mm. Well, let me bring James Thompson into the conversation. He's chief strategy officer and partner at Buybox Experts, an agency that works with brands selling on Amazon. And he previously was head of Amazon Services, a division that recruits sellers to Amazon Marketplace. So he's a former Amazon employee as well, but now no longer uh, with the company. James Thompson, welcome to On Point. Thanks for having me, Magna. So first of all, give us give us your, uh, your big picture on how m- Amazon Marketplace is transforming uh, e-commerce in, in the United States right now. It is the, the it's not the only player, but it's the biggest player in this space. So how is it changing e-commerce? You, you made the point earlier in terms of what does it mean to change e-commerce versus becoming the marketplace itself. And I work with a number of brands who, quite frankly, even though they may have the opportunity to sell elsewhere in e-commerce, if they're not on Amazon, if they don't have an Amazon channel strategy, it's impaired, it's, it's rather obvious that there's going to be a bigger issue for them. Amazon's where the customers shop, and so they have to be present there. Even if they don't want to be present, they have to be present. Whether they're selling themselves, whether they're working with other sellers who are selling their products, brands need to have an Amazon channel strategy. One of the most challenging parts of working with brands that have historically grown up without e-commerce is that for many of them, they look at the Amazon channel and they say, this is just another channel. We're going to sell into this physical channel and that physical channel. And, oh, here comes the Amazon e-commerce channel. I guess we can sell into that channel. But the dynamics of what happens on Amazon have impacts throughout all of their distribution efforts, online and offline. And so for brands that don't pay attention to what's happening to their products on Amazon, can wake up one day to discover that there are unknown sellers representing their products. There are people creating brand content for their brands that they don't uh, necessarily think should align with the messages they're putting out in all the other channels. And then there are all sorts of issues uh, that can happen with pricing uh, falling on Amazon because there's much more competition on that channel than mm. there would be in any other channel. And so when, when you look across all, all these different types of issues, uh, when you talk about transforming e-commerce, I would argue Amazon is actually transforming uh, sales in every online and offline channel for, for consumers uh, because what happens in Amazon impacts what happens in every other channel. Right. Okay. So uh, Dharmesh Mehta, uh, in, a, in a different interview, once said that mm-hmm. his ambitions for Marketplace or Amazon's ambitions for Marketplace were to be able to sell all of the product in the world at yes. the lowest prices, and then he added, as long as it's genuine. So that is a gargantuan-sized ambition, and Amazon has, is, is, has been quite successful in that so far. But what I'm hearing you say is that if there are any victims to that success, it's the very sellers whose product uh, may be not, not just on Amazon, but anywhere. I want to be careful with the word victim. Okay. Um, I, I would argue that if you're a brand and you're selling to consumers or bis- small businesses that might use otherwise the Amazon business channel, Amazon is now at a point where its impact on consumers is so broad that as a brand, it's hard to ignore what's happening on Amazon. You may say, listen, we're happy selling phys- in just physical brick and mortar. We're happy having a direct-to-consumer Shopify site. The problem is Amazon is actively going on recruiting sellers of all sorts. Uh, 
And some of those sellers may not necessarily be what we call authorized sellers. They, they may be folks that have found a way to get their hands on your product uh, without your permission as a brand. And, and those, those sellers are now putting your products on Amazon. And, and they're bound to far fewer restrictions than authorized resellers may have with the brand. And so you end up with a situation where, as a brand owner, you're never quite sure who's selling your products. And there may be a bunch of people selling your products. You can't even identify who they are. And you have no idea where they got your products. But as an Amazon consumer, what you see is lots of selection, probably lower prices on Amazon that you might see elsewhere, and an opportunity to get products delivered to you quickly. And so what's best for Amazon customers, at least in the short term, uh, often does not align with brands that historically have thought that they're fully in control of what happens to their products. Mm. Now, a, a minute ago, you heard Stacey Mitchell say that Amazon's influence in e-commerce is so big uh, that, in, in her words, that it's it's almost undemocratic. It's 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 not it's not a healthy uh, position for one company to have that much influence. And then, James, you you just said that um, Amazon isn't just changing e-commerce, e but sales overall. So, I mean, what's your response to to Stacey's analysis of like, taking it even to the next level, that it's too big? I, I'm not an antitrust attorney, and I, I'm not going to comment on that. But what I will say is Amazon has been very effective at identifying where different types of channels haven't been particularly efficient, haven't innovated, haven't looked for ways to deliver products to consumers in ways that consumers want them to be delivered. And while there's been lots of press about some of the challenges that Amazon has uh, created for itself and created for brands, at the end of the day, and I, I think back to, to my time when I was at Amazon, we were looking for ways to create a better solution for consumers. Mm -hmm. And Amazon continues to look for better ways to create better solutions for consumers. And sometimes they get themselves in trouble, um, but regularly Amazon doesn't get enough credit for all the work they are doing to keep the channel clean, to look for counterfeits, to look for ways to help brands protect themselves. Uh, they, they've grown so quickly on a basis of essentially putting strong rules in place, but then trusting that people will follow the rules versus being in a position to proactively enforce rules before before sellers have opportunities to make mistakes or, or to do inappropriate things, that now they're playing a little bit of catch-up. Um, but, but at the end of the day, who doesn't want to have as much selection as you can find, deliver to you quickly, at low prices? Th that's a fantastic opportunity for any type of organization to grow. Right. And Jeff Bezos has said, listen, let's take that same framework and let's apply it to other countries. Because it turns out consumers all over the world they like lots of selection. They like low prices. They like stuff delivered quickly to themselves. Yeah. So the, the, the model makes sense. The question is to have they been too effective in doing what they want to do or has everybody else been too slow to respond? Mm. Those are those are questions that other mm -hmm. people will have to answer. Well, Stacey Mitchell, let me turn back to you on that because I think James Thompson is making an important point. Consumers actually love the services that Amazon provides, which is why they one of the reasons why it keeps growing. So, I mean, what respond to what he says, and then also let me ask you: What do you think will happen if Amazon, if the marketplace in particular, since we're focusing on that, continues uh, its growth and expansion, even as James is saying, into other countries? 
You know, I think the the way to ensure that we continue to have innovation, that we continue to have companies that can come along as Amazon did 25 years ago and come up with a new idea for how to do things and succeed at that, you know, the, to the degree, you know, to, to, the, to, to the ability of companies to have those new ideas and, and even, you know, to, to have introduced new products that can succeed and, and all the rest of that really depends on having a competitive market. You know, I mean, I think the, the risk right now is, uh, is that in the absence of addressing Amazon's monopoly power, we are actually cutting off uh, those new inventions, those new ideas, both in the the you know big picture kinds of breakthroughs, but also in small ways, in the ability of say a small publisher to introduce a book by a, a terrific author that no one has heard of. That has become much harder because of Amazon. So consumers uh, are, are really in danger here from Amazon's monopoly power, and I think ordinary Americans recognize this. On, on the we they both love the convenience uh, and and what Amazon has brought to the market, but according to recent polls, more than 80% of Americans believe that Amazon has too much power and that it does need to be uh, addressed uh, by policymakers. Mm, mm. Now, uh, Stacy, earlier you talked about what does Amazon do with all the data that's generated by products that uh, are, are sold on Amazon Marketplace. It's a really important question because it's been the focus of antitrust investigation um, at the federal and state level uh, here in the United States. So when I spoke with Amazon Vice President for Customer Trust and Partner Support, Dharmesh uh, Mehta, I asked him about that. What does Amazon itself do with the, the data generated in the marketplace? Well, I think it's um, really important on that question to separate what Amazon retail, which is, you know, one of the sellers in our store, um, versus the many parts of Amazon that are running the store for all sellers, including Amazon retail um, and all the third-party sellers in our store. You know, our teams that operate the store for all sellers use a great deal of aggregated data. But when it comes to Amazon retail, the, the way we think about that is very similar to the way we think about any seller. Um, Amazon retail employees, they're prohibited from using any non-public seller-specific data. Well, last year, though, the Wall Street Journal reported that Amazon retail had been doing actually exactly that, allegedly using non-public seller data to introduce new products that undercut independent sellers. So I asked Meta about that. Last year, the Wall Street Journal reported that after interviewing some 20 former Amazon employees and after they had reviewed documents provided to them, they determined that um, Amazon had used that very same data that you're talking about from independent sellers to develop competing products, which is a practice that you just said was at odds with the company's policies. I um, I don't know the specifics of the case um, and uh, that you're highlighting and kind of uh, what was found in that investigation. What I do know is that we uh, we absolutely prohibit the use of seller-specific data that's not public. And there's a tremendous amount of data that's public that a lot of our sellers use because it helps them identify, you know, where are the areas that they want to expand into. They can read customer reviews and see what customers like and the features of those products. Um, and so it's absolutely true that um, all of our sellers, including Amazon Retail, have a great amount of data accessible to them. And it actually creates kind of a healthy competitive you know, environment where 
um, customers get to win. I'll just give you a specific example from the Wall Street Journal story uh, from last year. They report that Amazon employees access documents and data about a best-selling car trunk organizer that was sold by a third-party vendor on the marketplace. And that information included total sales, how much the vendor paid Amazon for marketing and shipping, how much Amazon made on each sale. And then thereafter, Amazon's private label arm introduced its own car trunk organizer. So that seems to me doing the very thing that you said was prohibited because is that date that's not publicly available data, is it? Uh, the, the bestseller in a category is public data and someone could see it. But if someone violated one of our policies and an employee went against the policies we have in place or found a way to circumvent the controls we have in place, um, we would absolutely go investigate that. The employee would likely be terminated for what they've done, um, and we'd want to hold them accountable. It's just not acceptable. That's Dharmesh Mehta, Amazon's vice president for customer trust and partner support. Now, uh, by the way, that Wall Street Journal uh, article actually triggered some investigations both at the state and federal level through the FTC, the European Union also, uh, through the European Commission in November of 2020, accused Amazon of violating uh, competition or or, or uh, fair practices laws there. So um, Stacey Mitchell, just quickly respond to this, because the, the question of how Amazon uses its data is a focus of, uh, of Congress and, and federal investigators. That's right. I mean, not only reporting by the Wall Street Journal, but the congressional investigation last year found extensive evidence that this is not a problem of, you know, some some wayward employee. It is a systematic uh, problem across Amazon. We've seen this over and over and over again. Um, Amazon has, in some cases, uh, demanded that sellers hand over their invoices. Um, ostensibly to prove that they legitimately bought the product, but you know that's giving them information about suppliers, sources, and vendors. They are able to gather up incredible amounts of data about about these products and then and then replicate them. One thing that I think is important to note is that Amazon wins no matter what. They can either sell their their own product and succeed that way, having ripped off a seller's research and development. Or, you know, the seller, in some cases, what you see is the seller will start buying advertising and, and spending more with Amazon, and now their product will be back at the top yeah. of the search results. So this is all about gaining leverage, about being able to squeeze as much out of the economy and into the pockets of Amazon as, as the company can. Well, Amazon sent us a statement uh, following up on that, saying the Wall Street Journal conflated access to single-seller single data with aggregate-seller data, resulting in the inaccurate implication that the use of any sort of Amazon sales data would violate the policy. Stacey Mitchell, co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, thank you again for joining us today. And James Thompson, chief strategy officer at Buy Box Experts, thank you as well. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs> 